Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we speak with an old friend of mine, Benjamin Cho. Ben is a partner at Loeb & Loeb and has recently moved from Beijing to Hong Kong. After studying both computer engineering and law in the U.S., he moved back to Beijing and joined Google, later leaving in 2009 with then-head of China for Google, Kai-Fu Lee, to act as legal counsel for his raise of $115 million USD in a venture capital fund called Innovation Works, across the table from Cooley LLP, whom he joined shortly after the deal was done, before joining Loeb & Loeb later on. We start out talking about the early days of law in China, and then how he came to be involved with Innovation Works, and how in 2009 they knew that the future of internet in China had arrived via mobile. I asked Ben what the terms and investment sizes were 10 years ago when Innovation Works started investing in early stage startups in China, and how it differed from Y Combinator and why. I asked Benjamin about the legal frameworks of today in tech in China. Do they protect Chinese investors and their IP? And how closely is it mirroring what one would find in Silicon Valley? We also talk about what Chinese investors look for in early-stage startups and whether it is completely safe now for foreign-led early-stage startups to take investment from Chinese investors. We discuss the stress that exists, even on local success stories like ByteDance and not just the Facebooks and Googles of the world, who have to play ball with China's big brother and tow the information line properly to be allowed to thrive. Lastly, as we begin to wind down this fascinating conversation, we talk about what a liquidity event might look like for a technology company based in China and what some of the most interesting sectors of innovation are right now in China that bold foreign investors may want to look at putting their money into. Enjoy. At least the companies like you know, Google or Facebook, they have a global market. They you know, have a philosophy to you know, help to make information free, to organize information for you, which is uh, very much a strength for Silicon Valley companies and quite a challenge for even large tech companies from China. Alibaba is still trying to do that. ByteDance, because of TikTok, has to a large extent achieved that. But even for ByteDance itself in China, there are a lot of challenges. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Benjamin Cho, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Todd. Thanks for having me. Okay, why don't we start with a little bit of background. You are Chinese. I think you were born in China, but then I know you spent a lot of time in the U.S., and I think you did a bunch of your school in the U.S. So just tell us a little bit about going to the U.S. and and your, your time studying law there, and then when you came back to China. Sure. I grew up in Beijing. I'm from China, but these days very much a world citizen. I finished most of my college and law school in the U.S., college at a liberal arts college in the Midwest in Missouri, and then law school in California, in Northern California, in the Silicon Valley. And I came back to China pretty early on, 
almost 15 years ago. If um, people remember, that was during the time of the housing boom. That was uh, after the dot-com bust. So a lot of people were getting into finance. And in my world at that time, I only wanted to be an intellectual property expert, helping companies and individuals with respect to their patents, trademarks, trade secrets, the intangible assets. So I really wanted to work with uh, tech companies um, that, you know, in part relates to my personal background. Some of my family members used to be in the government-related legal area about intellectual property in China. And uh, back in college, I studied computer science. On top of that, I went to law school in the Silicon Valley. And the convergence of, you know, history so goes that China was also, you know, booming several years after China became a member of the World Trade Organization. Uh, that was that happened in 2001. And then the rest is history. China became a, a huge manufacturing hub in the world. And uh, technology and you know, all kinds of uh, consumer brands kept thriving in China. And I'm glad to have been a part of it. Mm-hmm. And then 10 years um, ago, I sort of uh, switched gear from focusing intellectual property to venture capital. At the time, I joined a bunch of friends who were executives at uh, Google China, including the former president of uh, Google China, Kevin Lee. He left uh, Google China in 2009 to start a initially a incubator, which pretty soon turned into a a fairly large VC fund investing in tech. Okay, we're gonna get it. I'm gonna get into that. I'm gonna ask you about that. Sure. I have an interesting question though. Back from the beginning, you said you were studying mm-hmm. computer science and you were studying law. I'm curious, was there any influence or desire from your parents to choose one or the other path? Was was it favorable back then to go into computer science or was it more favorable from a parent's point of view for you to study law? Well, things happened one step at a time. My family were always very liberal. I didn't really have any direct you know, influence such as someone trying to persuade me to you know, do this or that. And what Chinese people until very recently had uh, no idea about the legal industry, about legal as a you know, law as a profession. The legal profession in China, as we know it, only started in early 90s. And uh, you know, before that, all lawyers in China were essentially you know, public employees or government employees. Right. Very different than the Western uh, concept. A lot of things happened very quickly in China. Not only the legal, legal profession, but the basic uh, legal framework especially when it comes to something like intellectual property or you know, modern securities law. Those are very Western concepts and all the, the whole framework and professions happened very quickly. So I had some sort of subtle family influence because until early 90s, my father was in charge of the copyright office in China. And I guess a lot of people are not aware that China didn't have copyright law whatsoever until 1990. Before that, nothing was protected by copyright in China. So it was a a little bit funny that I think starting in middle to late 80s, again, there was no copyright law in China. 
Disney tried to crack the China market, I think by providing free contents, free of license, no need to pay contents to the state broadcaster CCTV.、Mm-hmm. And anyone who grew up in you know urban area in China probably remember from the late eighties、uh, that very regularly, at least I think、uh, once a week, the family would gather around. I think on Sunday evenings to watch Mickey Mouse and the other Disney shows,、uh, Goofy and, and Donald Duck. And、uh, before the show, there was、uh, some kind of at that time kind of a weird, you know, indoctrination or legal propaganda from Disney saying,、uh, in Chinese, of course, the following content is protected by you know copyright, and anyone who doesn't respect the rights will be punished. Except that there was no was no legal framework whatsoever to protect any of the the rights that were that were being mentioned. You used to see it all the time, where you had like the infringement and there'd be the big FBI warning. You know, especially when people started copying things onto VHS tapes and stuff. Right. Copyright infringement, the whole thing. And this was maybe Disney coming from the Western world, where this was. Probably quite common. Yet, when it shows up on the screen, translated、uh, or interpreted into into you know Mandarin or Cantonese, then all of a sudden, this must have been a strange thing for viewers in China to be witnessing. Right, I was in a privileged、uh, position to understand what's going on because my father at the time was involved in the negotiation representing the Chinese government.、Uh, in his case, of course, mainly with the, the U.S. to potentially allow China to join. The predecessor of WTO at the time, there was something called、uh, GATT, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariff, which、uh, later on became WTO. I think in the 90s. But essentially, what happened was, you know, China was being asked by the Western world, led by America, to update a bunch of laws within China, especially intellectual property. And the goal for both sides was for China to. To join the international trade family, but the negotiation was very hard. It went on for more than a decade, and China only became a member of WTO after GATT became WTO. So, like I mentioned earlier, the legal framework,、uh, the basic ideas about intellectual property, and around the same time about capital market, about venture financing, were very Western idea, in a way,、uh, imposed on China by. The Western world, maybe imposed is not the, the best word. From Western influence, from you know Western expertise, and、uh, China itself wanted to you know, update its internal you know way of doing business to join this international club, and the rest is history. Do you think that it was you know the joining of the WTO, or really when China dis- decided that they were going to open up? Uh, and it was time to kind of get in the game and get in the race with the rest of the world. Do you think this is what set in motion these change、mm-hmm. options to to start bringing those into Chinese the Chinese framework of society and government? Right. Well, in a way, the Chinese government had a bunch of industrial policies that made sense. There were quite many meaningful, sensible reforms. Including the update of the intellectual property legal framework, and for for any as we know for any business to survive, thrive, you need typically need a capital and you know talent. And when it comes to manufacturing, not only 
management talent, but also cheap labor, educated cheap labor, and uh, technology. And all these were happening around the same time, ever since China started the open and reform policy in late 70s. And uh, things accelerated a little bit more in early 90s after Deng Xiaoping, several years before he passed away, very strongly pushed again towards reform and uh, openness. And then everything just accelerated further. Interesting. Okay. I'd like to go back and, well, and then, and then fast forward. I'd like to talk about one of the earliest times that you and I would have started to be swimming in and around the same circles. And that's when you got together with Kai-Fu Lee and became the general legal counsel and fund director around Innovation Works. And right. of course, you were now working to raise a fund. And I think you were working with Cooley because you worked with Kai-Fu Lee at Google as well. Tell us- sure about how that came to be. What was the conversations happening on your side? What was Kai sure. thinking and saying? And what was driving this? What was happening in China at, back in those 2008, 2009 days that started to bring this Innovation Works thing together? Well, in 2009, I just happened to have this opportunity to join Innovation Works, which, as I mentioned, initially started as China's answer to Y Combinator. We only wanted to do, you know, seed level, angel investment, machine gun strategy investment in um, a lot of very young startups. That was the, the thinking. And uh, me and my uh, colleagues at the time, you know, frankly, none of us had you know, early stage VC or just, just generally, you know, VC experience. Before that, I was an intellectual property lawyer, specifically in an IP litigator in China which uh, that kind of background, of course, helps uh, when it comes to working with tech companies. But I was not a VC lawyer. But then again, we're talking about more than 10 years ago. And uh, my colleagues who came from, mainly came from Google China, many of them, including Kai-Fu, had uh, many years of working with large Western IT companies. In many people's case, Google, Apple, Microsoft, but venture capital was something new to us. We had a vague idea. We have a general sense about uh, what it is. But we had to you know, learn a lot of things. And um, don't forget that the whole VC investment landscape in China itself was very new. Back in 2009, there were maybe a few dozens you know, really specialized VC funds focusing on China. Mm-hmm. And if you go back a little bit further, around early 2000s, there were maybe, you, can, you could probably count within you know, 10 fingers how many VC funds were actually active in China. And several things happened around 2009 and 10. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of uh, liquidity because of uh, all sorts of uh, you know, government stimulus from around the world. Mm. A lot of cheap um, you know, money on the market. And mobile internet was taking off iPhone came out in early 2007. I remember this very clearly because when I was um, working at a a large UK firm specializing in intellectual property, Apple was actually a client and iPhone was announced and disclosed in January 2007. The first, and apparently at that time they had a lot more 
production headaches compared to today. I guess Foxconn was still, you know, streamlining their capabilities to serve Apple, and the early batch of products didn't get released until June in 2007. A large company like Apple would make、uh, kind of silly mistakes when it comes to IP in the developing market. They forgot to. Register their design patent for the earliest version of iPhone, so they miss miss、uh, some chances to go after some China-based copycats who, at that time, not appreciating much the fact that iPhone is more of a software product rather than hardware. They made a bunch of、uh, fake iPhones, which really annoyed Steve Jobs, who was uh, still uh, alive and well.、Mm-hmm. But you know, after iPhone, you know, Android came out, everything became. It became quite clear around 2009 that a mobile internet was going to be the future. That was one of the reasons my、uh, colleagues at Innovation Works left Google China or some other companies they were working at to、uh, do early stage、uh, funding, especially when it comes to mobile startups. And another important factor, of course, is the China market became、uh, much bigger. There were more. Investors from around the world looking at growth opportunities in China. What was the standard operating procedure when you met、uh-huh. up and they were interested in joining Innovation Works? What kind of terms? What kind of cash for equity split? What you know? I I know it's changed so very much over the years, but back in the early days,、uh-huh. it was just getting going. What did those deals look like? Okay, when it comes to The deals of investment between well, Innovation Works as a investor or incubator with the companies was essentially very similar to what happens between Y Combinator and and their portfolio companies.、Mm. In Y Combinator's case, they tried to use more of a cookie cutter deal structure with、um, respect to all these portfolio companies.、Mm. At Innovation Works, the investor To I guess generally speaking, a little bit more equity in the companies because oftentimes before a team of leaders has been identified, the incubator itself was already organizing a bunch of engineers to work on a idea.、But、looking back, it was quite crazy because generally it doesn't make sense to start a company or a project or a tech product unless you have a You know, visionary entrepreneur leading it, but at that time, when it comes to mobile internet, there were just so many opportunities to pursue that we try to start very quickly, pull some engineers together, work on the product first, and then see, and then sort of scout the market to see which entrepreneurs with a good backgrounds are would be suitable to lead. Once the startup that was still you know in the making. So a lot of people came out from Tencent, from Baidu, or came back to China from the Silicon Valley, like to to lead、um, the project that we invested in. But then again, the whole thing about you know startups, about the Silicon Valley type of dreams, were a Western import. The investors, the returnees, sorry, the investors, the entrepreneurs, the fund managers. Almost everybody had、uh, some sort of a Western background. Either have worked at a Western international IT company or international bank, or you know been to law school in the U.S. 
something like that, almost always. But of course, that uh, landscape is uh, changing a little bit. There are more, you know, second generation entrepreneurs and investors in China who did not have a lot of, you know, Western personal ex experience. But uh, a lot of the institutional knowledge really came from the Silicon Valley people. Is the legal framework now, or has it always been potentially friendly for entrepreneurs? Uh -huh. Does it protect them? How close is the legal framework today, investment or IP protection? How close does it mirror what you might see in Silicon Valley? The essence of the legal framework when it comes to forming a fund or after a fund is formed for the fund to deploy the money into portfolio companies has always been very much based on the document, including the language, in, typically in English, from the you know Silicon Valley law firms, including the former law firm Cooley, where I worked at. Five years ago, I joined my current law firm, also a California and New York-based law firm that's very active in China, including Hong Kong and Beijing, called Open Lope, including my former firm Cooley, you know, these um, U.S. firms negotiated deals for decades between investors and other uh, portfolio companies. The lawyers working these kind of transactions in China over the past 20 years generally just borrowed templates from the Silicon Valley lawyers. And there's also a trade association called uh, NVCA, National Venture Capital Association. They publish... Uh, model documents about venture financing and the firms in the Silicon Valley, such as uh, Y Combinator, which I mentioned, also publish a bunch of uh, standard documents mm -hmm. uh, in their case for early stage deals. All those have been borrowed in China and just, you know, tweaked uh, somewhat. So, you know, I wouldn't say the most of the documents are uh, in, in China are more you know, pro-investor or pro-entrepreneur. I would say that because the VC industry in China has been so young and it was, generally speaking, always easier for the investor to have you know, leverage and knowledge that the terms typically had been more investor-friendly. Mm -hmm. But at least for a while, when the market was pretty hot, when a lot of the top entrepreneurs were being chased after by capital, Many of them were smart enough to hire good lawyers to negotiate terms that are more friendly to the entrepreneur, to the founders. So things have generally moved towards middle of the road. You've done a lot of deals, helped a lot of investors do a lot of deals. Do Chinese investors look for the same things in the startups they invest in that, let's say, Silicon Valley for for lack of a better uh, protagonist in the story, do they look for the same things when they're investing? Is it is it really very much a, a, a similar discovery process? I would say roughly 80% or 90% would be the same thing that we're looking at. You know, whether someone has a you know, suitable background, industry knowledge, whether someone you know, fits into the right bracket in terms of age. Of course, that's, uh, that would be wrong, but more or less the reality. People look at, uh, you know, gender, you know, whether, you know, what kind of nationality you are. And especially when it comes to, to China, you know, one thing that's quite different than the Silicon Valley, where 
a lot of the uh, startups uh, founders are have international background are you know foreigners like Elon Musk from Canada plus South Africa and uh, many of the founders in the Silicon Valley came from India from you know European countries in China it's a lot more important for the investors that the founders have a local background a local local knowledge so much so that these days we probably see fewer returnees from the west who receive a sort of star treatment in China by the investors more the investor the the founders in with a local background if we look at the founder of ByteDance the founder of Didi for example they tend to be sort of a you know youngish but not super young a youngish person who had a enough number of years of experience working at uh, local China-based IT or internet companies. If we're a foreign startup, let me ask you a, a, an intentionally very naive question. Is it safe to take take on a Chinese investor and to, to, to take Chinese money, so to speak, into a foreign startup? And after you've had a hearty laugh, please tell me how ridiculous mm-hmm. that sentence is or that question is. If we're talking about a Western, I mean, a non-Chinese a startup that operated in China, so we're not talking about a, a company trying to get into China. I assume we're not talking about a situation similar to, you know, LinkedIn or building a China or Airbnb in setting up Airbnb in China as a joint venture between Airbnb and the you know, local, a team of local entrepreneurs and local investors. So that's one scenario about a foreign tech company trying to make it in, in China. I would say not only that's acceptable, it's probably quite essential and also very useful for the company to have outside investors that, that on top of the money also provide you with local knowledge and, and guidance and you know, down to the details, a good local a partner, including a local investor, would help you with um, you know, funding, with hiring talented executives to run your operations in China, advice on strategy, advise you on future funding, and potentially help you do deals. You know, when, a few years ago, when Uber, in a way, threw in the towel and exited China by selling Uber China to Didi, which is for now by far the market leader in taxi app in China. That was a success for for Uber. You know, it, it took Uber several years to become a, a main rival for Didi. But then through, I think it mostly a share swap, the merger between Didi and Uber China gave Uber very healthy financial return. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we can say that one played a played to a tie, in a sense, which was which was considerably, right. you know a good win for 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 Uber. How is it that we can have a tie in the situation of Uber? We can have devastating losses for companies like a Google or Facebook trying to bash their heads against the wall trying to get into China, but right. companies like an Airbnb and a LinkedIn can actually succeed and and even thrive inside China. How is it possible? What almost legal differences in how those companies entered China existed so they could be successful? Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, I'm not sure how well uh, 
LinkedIn and Airbnb have done in China these days, well, they have not, at least not been subject to the firewall like uh, um, Facebook or Google did. But uh, you know, as we all know, in China, it's always uh, challenging to mm-hmm. provide internet service that have anything to do with uh, contents or or a speech, you know, or news reporting. Mm-hmm. And that's not just tough for foreign companies, it's tough for local companies. Well, at least the companies like, you know, Google or Facebook, they have a global market. They, you know, have a philosophy to, you know, help to make information free, to organize information for you, to, you know, promote access to information. That's how they became a, a global product, which is a, very much a, a strength for Silicon Valley companies and quite a challenge for even large tech companies from China. Alibaba is still trying to do that. ByteDance, because of TikTok, has to a large extent achieved that. But even for ByteDance itself in China, there are a lot of challenges. And ByteDance is already a large company. There are there have been countless smaller company in China who, including the ones who at some point became quite successful, but because of their business model having something to do with uh, content or a speech, which the government didn't approve uh, for various reasons. Mm-hmm. And they had to, they were, they got, they had the government put a plug on them. And the company, that was an instant death for in many startups. It's, it's very different when Google or Facebook uh, or Microsoft facing, when they face uh, antitrust litigation or all, all, and all sorts of you know privacy related you know data security related government regulations, that situation that kind of headache for the tech companies is fundamentally different than the situation where you could uh, be instantly shut down, which happened to many startups in China. There have been a lot of let's say rumors or even reported cases, you know, proven true or not proven true of companies raising money in, in China, but then falsely reporting how much money they raised. And I have some good ideas as to why do that, but is there any fact checking going on or coming out in the near future where we can start to, I think what we all are is trust in numbers, trust in the amount that you raise, trust in the number of, of users that you have on your platform. I think that's the one thing that we're really looking for when we, to really analyze and understand China. It has been quite an open secret that uh, many startups, maybe also some of their investors, over-report the amount of money that a company has raised. There's a, a little bit of a culture of sort of you know wild, wild east mm-hmm. business culture going on in terms of you know using all kinds of ways to somewhat intimidate your competitor and show people you know look how much money I've raised. Because oftentimes the ability to have a capital to burn, so to speak, is important for a lot of the startups where success is largely based on 
the number of users you have accumulated. And uh, oftentimes, the way to accumulate or acquire users is to uh, subsidize uh, their use. And that also happens in the early days of uh, Airbnb and uh, Uber. Mm-hmm. And very much so when it comes to the uh, user-oriented tech startups in China. Mm-hmm. And on top of intimidating your competitors, oftentimes it helps to persuade employees and executives to join you to if you can show people that or somehow make people believe that uh, you're a you know solid company you know backed by you know serious money from well regarded investors but then of course if you you push it, the envelope too hard some people would you know blow the whistle and get the company exposed we i see that uh, quite often hopefully as the capital market when it comes to tech companies is, uh, has been slowly uh, deflating for the past one or two years. Uh, that kind of thing probably would happen uh, quite a bit less. I think uh, a good place to to bring this conversation to a close, which is always always excellent with you, Benjamin, thank you, is to talk about bringing a startup or a company to its close. And I want to talk about exit opportunities that exist. Sure. China or Hong Kong, what are those type of lights at the end of the tunnel with regards to M&A, our IPO potential? What does that world look like over in the wild, wild east? Sure. Um, that world has um, become, in a way, I have been seeing a lot of convergence with the Silicon Valley until seven or eight years ago. A lot of the large internet tech companies, tech companies, the DBATs, the Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, did not have a good reputation among the startups in terms of um, their willingness to acquire younger companies. But everything in a new market, frontier market like China, a lot of things could happen very quickly, very dramatically. It so happened that in more recent years, there had been a lot of acquisition and strategic investments by the large um, um, companies in smaller startups. So that has become a very important you know, exit uh, way for investors and the founders alike, which is a very you know, good news, a healthy situation in the market. Other than that, a lot of startups will be looking at potential listing on the stock market even today, despite the U.S. and China tensions and discussions in the U.S. about making it difficult for Chinese companies to get listed in New York, the number one destination for you know, public listing for the at least the top tech companies in China is still in the U.S. Of course, in parallel, Hong Kong has become uh, much more important. Just in you know recent um, months or the past year, we have seen. Alibaba, JD, and uh, NetEase, and uh, I think a bunch of other US-listed, China-based tech companies doing a deal listing in Hong Kong. Apparently, the thinking is, well, number one, there are a lot of uh, uh, investors familiar uh, with the China markets mm-hmm. uh, based in Hong Kong or in general in Asia. So possibly they appreciate the business and market situation in China better compared to investors in New York. And uh, number two, as a hedge against the risk of a further U.S.-China decoupling, 
if there's a decoupling in the capital market in the form of making it even more difficult or almost impossible for Chinese company to be lifted to be listed in the, the public market in New York, then you know Hong Kong would be the natural destination. And on top of that, China is seeing some reforms in the public securities market. The star board in Shanghai and the main board in Shanghai and Shenzhen、mm. still have some deficiencies, but they have always meant to be the the natural destination for. In China-based companies to raise、uh, capital,、mm-hmm. and、uh, you know, the Chinese regulators probably would be happy to to see that. If that happens, that's kind of a if that really happens, that would be kind of a loss for Western investors. Even today, the Western investors do not, you know, account for more than probably five percent of the the yeah, the money or activities on China public stock market. Is I want to ask just one final question, if you bear with me. Sure. For foreign investors, what is the avenue and、mm-hmm. the、uh, to invest in in Chinese startups, and what is the appetite potentially for Chinese in, in investments companies to take potentially U.S., Canadian, European investment monies in?、Uh, sure. Well, China has been quite open to Western investments, and over the years, together with her lawyers and accountants, the investors have figured out you know many ways to you know both invest and exit from investing and exit from、um, portfolio companies in China. Well, the the standard or traditional way of doing so is through. Direct investment in China, what we call the FDI, foreign direct investment, or doing the investment offshore. When you have a company in China, the market, the team, the operations are all in China. But to make it easy for the investors, and also make it easy for the investors to execute a future exit, is to have the China-based company set up a offshore parent company, whether in Hong Kong or. In one of the tax havens, such as、uh, Cayman Islands, and then in the future, the offshore parent company could、um, get acquired by other companies, could、uh, receive further investment,、mm. or could get listed in in Hong Kong or New York without、um, having to、um, go through regulator approval in China. And like I mentioned, a lot of the startups routinely get acquired by larger companies. You know, larger tech companies from China, from the West, and there are also large tech companies from Southeast Asia these days. So the market、um, has been, you know, quite interesting, active, and interconnected. Despite the news we read about about U.S.-China, you know, tension decoupling, of course, those are important. Everybody's have been watching. You know, because of the tensions, Chinese investors' activities. Including corporate investors like、uh, mm. the tech companies from China,、mm-hmm. their activities in the U.S. in North America in general, I guess, has declined、uh, very severely, down by eighty or ninety percent. Whether that's temporary, maybe, but let's just not forget. Yeah, at the same time, there's also a lot of you know convergence or integration going on in the global, you know, tech and、uh, IT industries. Well, we just saw a top of Disney. Executive join 
TikTok as the, the CEO for the, the product, directly reporting to the main founder. That kind of thing uh, wouldn't happen just a few years ago when it comes to China-based internet companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we all hope that the kids will start getting along here soon. Last thing, what are the technologies du jour? What are the most interesting technologies for investors? Where are they starting to look to, to put their money? Are we looking at plant-based stuff? Are we talking about life sciences? Is it green tech or are we still on VR, AR, AI? What's, what's really hot over there right now? Well, as lawyer, we just handle the, the deals for our clients. I wish I had the time to look at all the, the interesting companies on the market. But just from my day-to-day observation, especially what's changing, what has been changing since the past two or three years, self-driving technology, car-related technology, mobility mm. has been quite a theme. And mobility plus AI, so especially given the, the virus pandemic, People try to keep a social distancing. So part of the solution is you know, IT-based or AI-based robot or self-driven uh, delivery vehicles. We see a bunch of startups like that, very uh, well-regarded and receive them, a lot of the investments. And also you know, real-world tests in both Silicon Valley and China. And the life science in China, you know, together with in many more mature developing countries have been aging and middle class accumulated some wealth and people want to invest in health and lifestyle related um, uh, products. So drug discovery, healthcare related software, mobile health Mm. have been quite a hot area as well. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Benjamin Cho, partner at Loeb & Loeb LLP, formerly in Shanghai and Beijing, and now living in Hong Kong, but traveling between both. Thank you very, very much for, for coming on the show, for talking to us. It's been a long time. You and I go way back, and I hope we get a chance to catch up again soon. Thank you, Todd. Likewise. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at wpic.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jian.